This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Let's get on to uh, to this Badgero case, though, uh, right off the top tonight, because it is a fascinating story. It is a historic story. It is something that's never happened in this country before. We have a, a Hamilton guy who is on trial. As you probably know, you probably are aware of this story. I hope you're aware of this story. It means you've been paying attention. But we have a Hamilton guy who is on trial for the fourth time for the same first-degree murder charge. He's been tried. He was convicted. He won on appeal. He was tried again. He was tried again. Here we are, number four. Susan Claremont has been covering it from The Spectator. Susan joins me now. Susan, how are you tonight? Hey, I'm good, Scott. Thanks. Um, I don't want to sound indelicate or flippant or anything else, but let's use a TV example for where we're going on this thing. Are we watching a new episode right now at this point in the trial, or are we watching a rerun from everything we've seen before? Well, yeah, it's pretty much a rerun at this point. Um, There's, you know, going to be very little um, at this trial that we haven't heard before. Having said that, though, Scott, the stuff that we are going to be hearing for the first time at this trial is very significant. Um, The Crown Attorney named Cheryl Zick laid uh, a bit of a roadmap of that out for the jury at the beginning of the trial and told them that they're going to hear uh, some evidence about an old-fashioned phone booth. And that evidence will be stuff that no other jury has, has ever heard. You mentioned the new Crown Attorney. We've got a new Crown Attorney trying this case, and we've got a new defense attorney for the first time. And, you know, lawyers, like the rest... Actually, Scott, I'm going to interrupt. This Crown Attorney has been on it since, since day one. Oh, okay. She's the same kind of attorney, but you're right, a new defense team for Badra. And we have, um, okay, I got that one wrong. Pardon me for that. We have, however, we know that lawyers have different personalities, have different styles, have different methods. Are we seeing already in the first number of days of this case, are we seeing any significantly different strategy or different method of attack from the defense to what's been brought forward? Yeah, the defense lawyer is um, is a guy named uh, Russell Silverstein from Toronto, and uh, it's my first time doing a trial with him. So it, it's interesting to see his approach in the courtroom and sort of get a sense of, of where he's going with things. He's a very experienced lawyer, an excellent trial lawyer, um, but uh, yeah, certainly does have a, a different style from Bathrow's previous lawyers. Um, we've had a lot of forensic evidence this week, um, particularly um, autopsy results and things like that. And uh, Silverstein's style is he's, he's very respectful in the courtroom, um, but he, uh, you know, he asks tough questions in, in cross-examination. He asks very pointed questions. He, he already knows, like, you know, they they say this about journalists, too, that you ought to know the answer before you ask the question. And, and that's, I think, the case with Silverstein. He knows exactly what he's looking for uh, when he's cross-examining a witness. Is there, a, is there an easy way, I'm putting you right on the spot, but would there be an easy way to describe the difference between Silverstein and the previous lawyer? Is there is there something obvious in their style that you would see is very different? Well, uh, you know, yesterday we were doing um, uh, forensic evidence, autopsy evidence, and, and um, part of the background of this trial is that um, Robert Badger is charged with first-degree murder uh, and with rape. 
and um, the jury knows that um, Badro had sex with with Diane Rowendowitz on the night she died. He admits to to having sex with her, but um, but he says that that somebody else um, killed her. So the defense team is taking a slightly different approach in in this trial and is saying that um, uh, that while um, their client uh, admits to having uh, this this encounter with Diane, that somebody else not only um, killed her as she continued her walk home, but somebody else might have raped her as well. And um, uh, that's sort of casting it in a bit of a different light from, from the previous defense. Uh, team that that said um, that there wasn't any rape at all. Um, so these are very technical issues, but it's important because um, in Canadian law, if if rape and uh, murder are part of the same event, part of the same incident, then it automatically elevates the murder to a first degree murder charge. So it's it's a very important issue. For that right. Client. So they have to be able to distinguish that um, while he may have had consensual sex with her, there was no harm done essentially in that uh, or else he faces a stiffer uphill climb. Oh, c- correct. Yeah. That, that, um, uh, that it was consensual and that, um, you know, she left him very much alive and that something, uh, terrible happened to her on her way home. From what I've read so far of this, um, you really can't be a juror on this case and have a whole high level of squeamishness. Is that is that kind of fair to say? Well, um, yes. It is fair to say. Like right off the bat, it seems like it's, there's a lot of, again, I'll use the word, but there's a lot of indelicate stuff that's being talked about right away. And if you're really squeamish or really unable to deal with some of these difficult things, you would have, I would think, a very, very hard time being one of the 12 on this case. Uh, Sure, absolutely. And, you know, Scott, being a juror on any criminal case is, uh, is very difficult. It's a huge responsibility. Um, and not everybody is, is up for it. We see, you know, every time I'm there for, um, jury selection, there are people who, uh, who are, are dismissed immediately because they, they admit to the judge that they just can't take it. They, they can't deal with, with listening to that kind of evidence and seeing that kind of evidence. Um, this week has been, uh, particularly difficult. It, um, you know, the reality is at a, at a murder trial or a sexual assault trial that there is a lot of terrible, terrible evidence. Um, it's everything from autopsy photos to, um, uh, you know, test results and, and all of that sort of thing, DNA results. Um, it's hard, but it's extremely important. I, I wrote in a column earlier this week that um, it's, you know, it, it's it's necessary, but it's um, an indignity at the same time. And lawyers in the courtroom, all lawyers that I have ever known, um, take the utmost care to be respectful of victims. Um, but the reality is that this is the stuff that the jury needs to to hear and sometimes even to see. 
As we talked about last time when you were on here a couple or a few weeks ago setting this up, uh, this happened a long time ago, and I'm wondering, even in the early days of this trial, how the memories of the people, of the witnesses who are still around, how the memories are compared to previous times. Is, is everybody as clear as they were last time they were called? No, no, absolutely not. Um, you know, we've had uh, police officers on the stand who were uh, young new constables at the time Diane was murdered 35 years ago. You know, they were um, first year on the job, second year on the job, and now they're retired, and they are huh. still being called again as a witness in this case. And um, police officers usually go through a process when they, when they hit the box, when they hit the, the witness stand, where they have their notebook with them, and, and um, uh the Crown asks if the defense and, and the judge will allow them to refer back to their notes. And these officers more and more are having to refer back to their notes because their memories are fading of the event from 35 years ago. Some of these officers are being asked to testify about, you know, 15 minutes of their lives 35 years ago. They had, you know, they were on the scene of, of um, of the murder for for just a few minutes and now still have to recount it in great detail. So notes are becoming uh, far more important. And also we're getting more and more read-ins. And a read-in is when um, a witness from a previous trial, and there have been three other trials plus a preliminary hearing in this case, when a previous witness has either passed away or is no longer able to testify um, due to, to Ill- illness. So uh, we've had four or five or maybe even six um, read-ins already in this trial because so many people have, have um, passed on or are too ill to testify. Now. And that actually brings me to one of the things that, that I have found most interesting so far, and that is, and if, correct me if I've got this wrong, but the pathologist, the, the coroner who did the autopsy and was the one who looked after all this, has died. So there is now a current pathologist who's on the stand interpreting the evidence. Is that right? Yeah, the, the original pathologist hasn't died, but he has, um, he's not able to testify. And you're right. So now there is a, um, we had a forensic pathologist, Dr. John Fernandez, brilliant, brilliant doctor, um, who I've uh, testify at many murder trials, um, was on the stand all day yesterday interpreting the report from the original coroner. But that's tough. So that's tough. If you're not there, because especially with the coroner, there's so many things that are there are things you've observed and situations. He's, to me, that's, that's a, almost a brain teaser to see how that could even work. It, it was really fascinating, actually, because you're right. Um, you know, it, Many differences. Uh, for one, um, 35 years ago, a, uh, a pathologist didn't take very many photographs during an autopsy because it was film. And, you know, you used it sparingly. Those of us who, who remember winding <laughs> our film up, um, you know, you, you didn't take as many frames as you do now. Also, um, you know, while they were taking photos, they couldn't instantly see whether the photos were clear, of whether course, they were yeah. capturing what they wanted to capture. 
So they developed the film, you know, later on and realized, oh, shoot, we didn't get a, a very good image of um, something important. And so that's, that opportunity is, is lost. Um, also, science has changed, right? Um, Dr. Fernandez testified about a number of very technical things that I won't even pretend to, to be able to recite to you. But, um, uh, you know, things that were, were considered um, common knowledge, um, common practice in 1981 in the field of forensic pathology that now are no longer considered um, accurate or, or appropriate. And so uh, even even the way notes were taken at the time is different from what the standard procedure is now. So Dr. Fernandez had to do the best with what he had and um, interpret uh, a very important, um, very technical report uh, that he didn't write and that he's not able to talk to the author about. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm trying to imagine if you had, if something happened to me and you had to interpret my notes and write a column that I would have written based on the notes I took, uh, what you would end up writing, I got to tell you, would be nothing related to, because, I mean, who could read, who could understand? It's really tricky. It's an amazing thing to try and figure out how he's able to do this. Um, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, I think the, the most important, most basic pieces of information are, are there are, and are indisputable. But there are um, there, there were certainly things that, that went unanswered and, um, you know, raised questions that uh, Dr. Fernandez just wasn't able to answer. Just before I let you go, and, and I don't know if you can even answer this question. And, and you know, answering it honestly is, is pot- potentially pretty tough because I don't know what it says, but you just covered the Bosma trial. The, the feedback, the amount of uh, interaction with readers was enormous. I know that. Do you get the sense from this, based on your experiences in the past, do you get the sense that people really at this point, and I hate to even say it this way, but really care about the outcome because it's happened so long ago and it's happened so often. Do you get the sense that a lot of people are really invested in the outcome of this trial or is it almost having to convince them that they need, they should be interested in this because of the historic value and because a person died? Yeah, this is, this is an ongoing issue for me and, and people who follow me on Twitter will know that I've been talking about this a lot. Um, I actually tweeted at one point this week, I said, um, you know, when I covered the Bosma trial, I gained thousands of readers. I think I had, um, uh, I think I had something like 5,000 followers on Twitter when, when the Bosma trial began and 11,000 when it ended. And that was entirely, I wasn't doing anything else. It was all about the Bosma trial. Um, in the couple of weeks that I've been at the Badger trial now and tweeting from the courtroom the same way I did at the Bosma trial, I've actually lost several hundred followers. And I find that um, very interesting and also very telling, but most of all, very sad. Um, you know, I think, I, I think people don't care as much about this case as they did about um, the Tim Bosma murder case. And, not for one second do I want to take anything away from from the Bosma family and, and that case. I totally understand why people were interested in that um, and why people cared so much, and I'm happy that that was the case. But what makes me sad is that there isn't the same kind of feeling for Diane Rowenduit, 
And, um, you know, I can tell you that it's a fascinating case from a legal perspective. I can tell you that it's precedent setting. I can tell you that, um, uh, you know, there are all kinds of interesting people involved with this case, including the, the Crown Attorney and various police officers who've worked on the case. But, but most of all, for me, um, it's about Diane and it's about, um, you know, her, her parents have both passed away. Her, her brother lives far away and is not at the trial. Um, she has a nephew who has been in court um, twice now at the, at the trial. But apart from that, there is nobody for Diane. There are no friends who come to the trial. There are no coworkers. There, there are no other family members. Um, she, uh, you know, there's nobody there who remembers her as a, as a, a real live human being. And that makes me sad. It made me sad at the last trial and the trial before that. And um, that's one of the reasons why I think it's so important for me to be there and to cover it. And, you know, and I'm glad that the, the spectator um, recognizes that, uh, you know, that, that there was a real life lost here 35 years ago. But we need to remember Diane. Susan Claremont, appreciate you doing this. We'll do this again soon. Uh, thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Scott. That is, uh, you can read Susan in the spec about the Badger trial as it goes on. It's supposed to go till December sometime, so um, lots of reading to do. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Reading the last couple days about a study that has come out of the University of Copenhagen. Now, there are a million studies that are done all the time, and some of them are legit, and some of them are quack and some of them, you're not really sure what to make of them. But one of the biggest things that it's always hard to figure out what's going on with them stems from what's the sample size? How big are these studies? Is this something that you can look at and you can say, okay, you know what, whether I agree with the science or disagree with the science, at least there's something behind it. Well, this study from the University of Copenhagen looked into finding out if there was in fact a connection between birth control and depression. Not something that probably for some people immediately comes to mind, but it's, all, it's obviously been an ongoing issue. Well, this study tracked a million, uh, this is what I'm going, this is the, as I understand it, tracked a million Danish women who were between the ages of 15 and 34 for 13 years to follow the effects of birth control and see what happened. Here's how the Washington Post summarized the results of the study. Women who used the combined birth control pill, a mixture of estrogen and progestin, were 23% more likely to be prescribed antidepressants than non-users. And progestin-only pills raised the likelihood by 34%. With the patch, antidepressant use doubled. Risk increased by 60% for vaginal rings and 40% for hormonal IUDs. And for teens age 15 to 19... Taking combined oral contraceptives, the use of antidepressants spiked, ready for this, by 80%. If all that is true, that is both staggering and more than a little frightening. Holly Griggs-Spall is the author of Sweetening the Pill, or How We Got Hooked on Hormonal Birth Control, a book that has been, about, it's been out there for a while talking about this issue. She joins me now. Holly, how are you tonight? 
good. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Well, thank you for coming. You, as I said, you have been ringing the alarm bell on this, as I understand it, for some time now. Have people been listening to you? Yes, I have. So my book came out in 2013, um, and uh, then it was optioned for a documentary that's still in production uh, about a year or so after that. Um, and early on, I got a lot of pushback, um, especially talking about the psychological side effects or potential mental health issues that there might be with hormonal contraceptives. Um, and so when I uh, wrote this piece for The Guardian this week about uh, the new research that you were explaining very well there, um, I was, you know, I'm used to it being a discussion point. I know women really want to talk about this, um, but I, it, it's had a huge response. Um, I think, as you say, partly because of the, the quality of the study is so high um, and really it's you know impossible to say it isn't a significant study, uh, but also just because I think, uh, you know, women are getting you know more aware of these things, uh, they're talking to each other, they're making connections, and so, you know, this conversation is sort of ripe for, for, um, for the attention that it's getting right now. What propelled you into this in the first place? Was it a personal experience or was it something you knew of from someone else? What what got you interested in this to start with? Um, yes, it was a personal experience. Um, I, like many women, took the pill for 10 years myself. Um, and I took one particular brand, uh, Yasmin, that was very, very popular and well-publicized um, as being a pill that actually was not meant to have as many side effects as other kinds of oral contraceptives. And that one had particularly um, difficult psychological impact on me, um, including depression, anxiety. Um, And so, sorry, from that experience, I started researching into the pill and um, I sort of started doing a few interviews as a freelance journalist, writing some articles um, for magazines. And then I started a blog um, and um, in that blog, I explored that research and I also decided document coming off the pill after 10 years and what that experience was like for me. Um, and from that point, because I was doing this on a blog and, and as I say, um, magazine articles, it meant that I was getting, there were a lot of women getting in touch with me and um, sharing their stories too. And um, often, you know, with depression and anxiety and similar experiences to my own. So that's how this the, the book came about, really. Um, did you know uh, that was out there? I, did you know that was out there when all uh, these women are getting in touch? Did you think it was just you, or did you figure there must be a lot of other people? Um, at first, I absolutely thought it was me or a very, very small minority of women that were having this experience. Um, and I was looking around for support, mostly, um, and confirmation that this was possible. Um, when I started to find confirmation that the connection was possible, um, then I started getting these stories from women. And, you know, I've been doing this for eight years now. I've basically dedicated my career to this particular topic. And I hear about this from women every day. Um, and so I think that at this point it's hard to say that the number surprises me, but I, I mean, it makes sense to me that this is not just women who are experiencing clinical depression as was researched in this new study, but women who are experiencing subclinical depression, anxiety, panic attack disorder, things like that. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's it's staggering to me that there hasn't been a a high-quality study until now. You know, the pill was released in the early 1960s. You mentioned a moment ago that 
when you started doing this, you started to get some pushback. And I, that's completely understandable. I think that uh, companies and other people might want to do that. But why do you think you receive the pushback? Is it just because the companies have money invested in this? Or is it because any time you start talking about something to do with women and reproductive rights or freedoms, that it becomes a political hot potato? And if you start trampling on it, then you're walking into an area that some people would say is sacrosanct. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. It certainly is a political hot potato. And being from the UK myself, um, I didn't grow up in that environment. In the UK, the pill is um, free, available on the NHS, National Health Service, and it's not controversial. Um, Nobody's trying to fight to remove access or prevent women from getting hold of hormonal contraceptives there. Um, I moved here, and of course I soon realized that this was the case here and that access was an issue um, and that meant that politically it's a very um, controversial topic and so I think the pushback definitely came from that and that a lot of people would rather we only talk positively about hormonal contraceptives because they fear that if you don't it gives ammunition to the other side as it were who want to remove access to um, reproductive health care services as a whole, but some hormonal contraceptives and IUDs and things specifically. So, um, you know, in in the case especially of sort of feminist movement, those involved in in feminism uh, can be very defensive about the pill um, and talking about hormonal contraceptives in a sort of critical way um, because of that reason Um, and you know it's understandable but um, I I think it's um, I obviously don't agree with uh, women keeping silent about these experiences or keeping silent about you know this sort of you know the significant kind of research that we're seeing now um, and um, not discussing it openly and, and not making a point of saying that women should be aware of this as a potential issue that they might have with their birth control. All right, Holly, so I'm going to put you right on the spot, and I don't know if this is an, an area that you can speak to well, but assume you're just talking to a dumb guy who doesn't really know much about the workings of the hormonal birth control, because I'll be honest, um, physiologically, I know what they are supposed to do as an end goal, but what is it that this study or that other science has found is going on? What is the chemical thing that's happening, supposedly, that would be going from step A, which is taking the pill, to step B, getting depression, or or maybe encouraging or, or facilitating people having depression? What is what is the chemical thing going on in the body that makes this happen? Okay, so this study doesn't actually tell us why it happens. It's just telling us that it does happen, this new study that we're talking about from the University of Copenhagen. However, there are several reasons why it happens, um, and you know these, some of these reasons are researched. Um, as I'll tell you them, you'll realize that they might not be uh, research that's necessarily on the pill. It might be research in other areas and connections that can be made from those other areas of medicine, um, nutrition. Um, so with the, what, with the hormonal contraceptives, they do deplete um, vitamins and minerals in the body and that's partly because they prevent you from absorbing them efficiently. Uh, so a lot of women who are on the pill are actually uh, deficient in B vitamins and B vitamins are crucial for mental health um, and mental stability. Uh, so that's one of the ways that that happens. There's a great book all about that um, called The Pill Problem that's very, very um, detailed and 
And the other way that it works is that uh, the pill suppresses ovulation. Now, um, a woman would normally have fluctuating hormones throughout her cycle, including peaks and troughs and and waves of hormones, essentially. And it's sort of designed to feel pretty good around ovulation uh, for evolutionary reasons. Um, And so when you remove ovulation, you also remove that sort of mood booster. Um, That also means that we actually produce no progesterone of our own because the pill replaces the body's production of progesterone. And progesterone is known to be calming, um, a relaxing hormone, kind of the happy hormone. Um, and instead, what your body's taking in from the hormonal contraceptive is progestin, which is a synthetic hormone, which is very, very different in, in makeup uh, to uh, progesterone that your body would create. So that's another thing that happens. So you actually, people always say, oh, you know, it puts women in a state of pregnancy. It actually puts you in a state of menopause, but not sort of menopause as you would experience um, at, the, at the time in your life that you're supposed to. It's sort of artificial menopause, which means you have very, very low hormone levels. And that sort of goes back to talking about if you don't have the peaks and troughs of hormonal changes, that means that you may, some women will get depressed, but some women may just find they never feel that great. They just sort of feel kind of blah and it's called anhedonia medically, um, that experience. Um, And so uh, the other side of it is you may have seen a lot more research um, recently about the connection between uh, gut health and mental health. And we're seeing more and more uh, to do with the uh, microbiota in our gut um, and how that is connected to um, depression and anxiety. And there's a a lot lot going on in the world of the microbiome research now. And the pill is actually very destructive to the microbiome or gut health. So that's another way that it works. Um, Yeah, it's a long long list. It's a long list. And, and let me just, we only have a couple of minutes. And so I just, I want to jam in as much as I can here because I got so many questions and I just, I know I'm going to run out of time. Um, if this science is right, if this study is correct, and if in fact hormonal birth control can contribute to depression, and just for the sake of this argument, let's, we'll, we'll say for this moment, we all agree, yes, it does. Whether, whether you do or don't agree, that's fine. But for now, we're going to say yes. If that's the case, Holly, there is a, there are a number of issues that obviously jump out, but one of them that maybe some people won't consider, and it jumped to my mind immediately, is in this country, in a lot of places in North America, young girls, early teenagers, have a right to get birth control without their parents' consent. And now, if you're saying that birth control can cause mental health problems, this now, to me, without stepping into a whole political landmine, this sounds like it could be a troubling combination if a 13-year-old girl or a 12-year-old girl can get something that will contribute to her having difficulties in other areas. Yes, see, this is, you know, obviously in California where I am, you know, you can now get um, hormonal birth control methods over the counter. Um, So, yes, I think the issue is, is that, you know, when you're a teenager and perhaps you do discuss this with your parents or maybe your parents take you to the doctor like mine did to get on the pill, um, then you do have somebody who knows you really well and they can definitely say, well, you've changed, you've obviously got depression, I don't see, you know, your your emotional experiences connected to this, um, taking this medication rather than anything else in your life. So that's really helpful, I think, with catching it early for sure. 
Um, it must be very hard for teenagers on their own to self-diagnose or notice that for themselves because, you know, we all know teenagers can be very up and down anyway. Um, and so I think that's really important. I think it's something that we need to to flag up for parents. But the thing is, is that I, if, if physicians and, you know, our OBGYNs and our GPs are doing their job, which is... <laughs> to um, explain to young girls, teenage girls, the possible side effects that they might um, experience, especially after this study has come out, um, then I would say, well, we need them to see their doctor because their doctor is going to tell them everything about, you know, what they might expect and what they should look out for. But actually, pharmacists are much, in my experience and from my understanding of their training, know a lot more about drugs from the offset often than an MD will. Um, because their whole their whole training is focused on medications, and so hope my hope would be that the pharmacist might even be a better person to explain this to a teenage girl um, than a doctor might. And a doctor is often the salesman for these drugs and convinces young girls to stay on them far longer than they're comfortable with. Um, so it's it's sort of six and one half a dozen of the other. It's a difficult conversation, but I think you know I am actually. Um, in, in favour of providing the pill over the counter, but I do think that that comes with caveats, and that you know the only reason I am is because doctors I don't see them as doing their jobs necessarily, and often they do become sort of the, the salespeople for these medications. Holly Holly Grigspall, I, I I wish we had more time. I am just completely out, but I really appreciate you doing this. Holly is the author of Sweetening the Pill or How We Got Hooked on Hormonal Birth Control. You can find that. Uh, it's a book that's out there. You can go find it if you're interested in this. You can also read up about the study. There's a million stories online right now about the study, including uh, an article that Holly wrote for The Guardian. Holly, I appreciate you doing this tonight. Thanks so much. Thank you. Uh, really, um, if you are someone especially who thinks that maybe there is a connection between your mood and, and now you have something you want to explore, there, there you go. I mean, I don't know. It's a huge study. I don't know if it's good science, but it's a huge study, which makes you at least think that there is a chance of it. But go read up on it. If it's something that you think you need to check out for your own health, absolutely go read up on it. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Let us, uh, let us jump ahead, however. Let us bring in... Rick Zamperin, the assistant news and program director, the senior sports director. I should say that. I say that, Rick, with extra emphasis because, you know, you are the senior sports director, which means you will know the answer to everything I'm going to ask you now. I, I should. I'm, you really should. I'm still, looking, I'm still looking for the junior sports director. <laughs> Isn't that Ted Michaels? Just, I mean, he, he's like the, um, the Dwight Schrute of the office. He's the, you know, the assistant to the manager. I'm not sure Ted is junior anything. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with the Blue Jays. I'm assuming you were one of the, uh, even though you have early mornings, I'm assuming you were one of those who was uh, in your PJs staying up watching with um, bated breath and chewed fingernails uh, the outcome <laughs> of the game last night. Well, you know what? I was uh, I was a little ticked off that the Blue Jays did not end it in uh, the ninth inning because that 3 a.m. alarm uh, was looming large. So at 11 o'clock and after the bottom of the ninth, I said, I'm hitting the hay. You did not. I did. <laughs> I certainly did. I uh, thought for sure when they did not score, when Donaldson let off the ninth with a double, I thought, and they didn't score then, 
and they had runners on first and second. I thought they're yeah. done. You you can't squander. And as the playoffs move along, you will not be able to squander those chances and continue to win. I mean, they got away with it because the pitching was outstanding. But you, you, we've seen this from them a lot this year. You can't do that. Yeah, more often than not, that's going to come and, and bite you in the behind. And, and you know what, Baltimore didn't have as glorious as chances as Toronto had last night, uh, but they certainly had some opportunities to. You know, extend some rallies, get a key hit here and there. But as you mentioned, Toronto, I mean, Strowman was good last night, but especially when they got into the pen, I mean, it was lights out. It but, was unbelievable. But Baltimore doesn't need to create rallies. They just need one swing of the bat because almost yeah. everyone in that, I mean, they hit the most home runs in the majors. And so you're, if you're a Jays fan last night, why it was so nerve-wracking was because you realized that literally almost anyone in that lineup could have ended mm-hmm. it. And that's, yeah, that's I mean, scary. Anyone from, well, you know, their one big hit was Trumbo, which was, you know, their, their main home run hitting guy. But, you know, you go down the list for, you know, Machado and Jones and, uh, you know, Scope can hit it out of the park. I mean, there's several guys, Davis, uh, they can all go yard at any given moment. So, you know, as, as the game wore on, it was 2-2, you know, after six and after seven and after eight innings, certainly after the ninth, you're thinking, man, one swing of the bat could win it. And ultimately, that's what happened. And especially we knew that Zach Britton was down the best closer in baseball waiting for Baltimore, which ultimately was their undoing, the fact that they didn't bring him in, I think. But anyway, let us I want to ask you a question about this. Um, there are now, in my opinion, and someone else could have a different one in here, but there are five keystone, trying to think of a better word, but five keystone home runs in Blue Jays' playoff history. So uh, think about these. I want you to put these in order for me, Rick, from least important, from least epic, not least important, they're all important, least epic to most epic. All right? We've got Joe Carter hitting the home run against Philadelphia. We've got Robbie Alomar hitting a home run against Oakland. We've got Jose Bautista hitting the home run against Texas. we got Edwin from last night hitting against Baltimore, Edwin Encarnacion. And the forgotten one, we have Ed Sprague hitting a home run against Atlanta. Put those in. What what order would you put those in as far as epic, least epic to most epic? Well, I would I would probably you know starting with number five, I'd probably go with Encarnacion. Uh, yeah, it was a walk off homer, and, and we see those from time to time. But you know this is a one game kind of wild card playoff game, so you know they they get the right to play in a series or, or in you know in another round of the MLB playoff system. So I'd probably go with that at number five. Although that was probably the one that was the most no doubter of all the five that we're talking about. Uh, after that, I'd probably go with the Bautista one against the Rangers last year in the ALDS. Again, another epic blast, uh, a more epic bat flip. Uh, and certainly <laughs> the, you know, the, the, the signal that, you know, this team had finally, you know, not only gone into the playoffs, but had done something special, you know, coming from 0-2 down in the series, losing both games in Texas and then a rally in, and rattle off three straight wins. I mean, that was uh, gargantuan. Number three on that list, I'd probably go Ed Sprague. You know, we're talking about World Series, uh, you know, at Turner Field or the old Turner Field, and, um, you know, a monumental hit that, uh, I don't want to say changed the series, but, you know, Atlanta could have gotten two up, winning both of those games at home, and that could have been a way different series. Uh, number two on the list, um, it's got to be Robbie Alomar. I mean, that was a, another gargantuan home run off Dennis Eckersley, the premier closer of the day, and it really signified the Blue Jays were at another level. They, they had hit that elite kind of status of, uh, you know, baseball lore. 
Um, and number one, obviously, Joe Carter. I mean, there's only been two walk-off home runs to win World Series in baseball history, and they've been playing this game for over 100 years. Uh, and, and that was one of them. And the other one being Bill Mazeroski in, in 1960 uh, played for the Pirates and beat the Yankees. So to be only one of two, that's automatically got to be number one on, on the Blue Jays' all-time home run list. For, for the record, for those listening at home, I did not cue up Rick on this question. He knew nothing about it. So all that was <laughs> off the top of his head, just just so people know. Um, the only thing I would I would change, and, and again, I you know I agree with you on every one of them, but I actually would put Ed Sprague at number two over Alomar, and I know people really? think that that might be sacrilegious. It was game two of the World Series. Mm-hmm. The Jays lost the first game, and they were losing in the ninth inning the second yeah. game. They forget Ed Sprague was a pinch hitter, and they were behind, and he came up and he drove in Derek Bell, who was on base. They lose that game. They may not win that first World Series. But here's right. the thing, Rick, I don't understand. When you talk about Blue Jay playoff big home runs, nobody ever mentions the Ed Sprague home run. It is like the completely forgotten home run in Blue Jays lore, and I don't quite get it. You're absolutely right. And even, you know, even the lead-up to yesterday's game, we saw you know, a lot of the, the great um, highlights of Blue Jays playoffs or Blue Jays games gone by, and certainly the Bautista one was there, Joe Carter was there, Robbie Alomar. That was basically the top three. And, and you know what, to tell you the truth, I'd forgotten about the Ed Sprague one until you just mentioned it a couple minutes ago and thinking, oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, they lost the first game. I think it was 9-5. They ended up winning the second game uh, in Atlanta, and then, you know, they go on to win uh, in that series in six. So, uh, yeah, gargantuan home run. And, uh, you know, a, a guy who was really unheard of until, you know, that at bat, you know, had a, a decent kind of first season. I think it was Kelly Gruber's backup that year and uh, and kind of took over the reins from, from there on in. Yeah, and uh, actually, a uh, little known fact, or at least some people will remember, his wife was actually a gold medalist in the yeah. Olympics in synchronized swimming. Yep. She beat Carolyn Waldo and Carolyn Waldo's partner, whoever that was. <laughs> he he was also on the 19, I think it was the 1988 um, Summer Olympic, US, U.S. Olympic team, and I actually have a bat with his signature on it and a bunch of other, uh, of the other guys on that team uh, from the 1988 uh, Summer Olympics. So uh, there you go. Well, let's hope there's another one before these playoffs are out to add to that list. Because i got to tell you, uh, last year with Bautista, this year with Edwin Encarnacion, there is, I was at the la- I was at the Bautista game, I was not, obviously I was here, I was not at the, but there is, an, a good friend of mine was at the game last night, there is an indescribable energy and buzz and, you know, when you're there, and even at home on TV, but to actually be there to see it, it's, it's, I don't know, Rick, that there's anywhere else, honestly, in sports, maybe in Vancouver at the at Rogers Place when Sidney Crosby scored in 2010, the explosion there. Right, right. But there's very few. Those, th- those three I would put in a rare list in the last decade or two of the most explosive celebratory moments in Canadian sports. I can't think of another one recently that falls into that category. Yeah, the only one, and, and this has gone back, uh, you know, at least a couple of decades, would, would be right here in Hamilton with the, you know, the old Canada Cup and Mario Lemieux scoring at, uh, you know, formerly known yeah, as Cops College. 1987. Yeah, but, yeah, but m- most recent times, at least in this country, th- th- those two got to be, at, you know, the top of the list. Or at least Bautista Encarnacion, uh, coupled with, uh, you know, the Golden Goal uh, back in Vancouver. Uh, let's go to the CFL for a second here, because you are a CFL guy. You're a football guy. Uh, you do the fifth quarter, by the way, the best post-game show anywhere in Canada right here on CHML after every Ticat game. 
Uh, although you get the week off because they have a bye week. But l- let me jump to this. Mm-hmm. There is almost certainly going to be a crossover in the CFL this year. When you look at, for people who don't know what the crossover is, if there are two divisions in the CFL, two conferences, if the the top three teams get in, but if the fourth place team in one has a better record than the third place team in the other, the third place team misses the playoffs and the fourth place team with a better record goes in. Well, the West is so much better this year than the East. And when you look at who, so Toronto's third right now, Montreal's basically out, Toronto's third in the East, and yet you look at Toronto's schedule the rest of the year, they've got to win at least two of their four remaining games and add another one on that for every game that Edmonton wins. Mm-hmm. And Toronto's games coming up are Calgary, Calgary again, Edmonton, and I can't remember who the, the other one, a Saskatchewan. Toronto's done. And so there's going to be a crossover. And Rick, I got to tell you, every time this happens, and maybe it's a knee-jerk reaction, but I really believe this, it is time for the CFL to abandon the conferences and go to one nine-team league and the top six teams get in no matter where they're from across this country. Agree or disagree? Well, I disagree, and I come from it this way. I, I certainly um, I certainly do like the crossover kind of scenario. I think it kind of uh, you know adds a little bit more excitement to you know the playoff format because in in years like this, I mean, really, the Argos can, can lose their last four games. That wouldn't surprise me. They've lost seven of their last eight. And they just got um, rid of all the receivers. And, and they just got rid of, you know, four premier receivers that were kind of carrying the load. But obviously some behind-the-scenes issues it really rubbed uh, head coach Scott Milanovic the wrong way. So he decided to pull the trigger. But, you know, that being that, you know, Toronto could lose their last four games. And if we didn't have a crossover, you know, here's a team going into the playoffs at 5-13 and 13 potentially. I don't think any CFL fan wants to see that, especially if you look at the other side of the table and you see an Edmonton team that, let's say, they end the year at nine and nine. You know, how can a team with four more wins not make the playoffs? So I do like the crossover, and the only reason why I don't like the, uh, let's call it, you know, European kind of soccer kind of uh, standings where you just have you know one division, um, is because you know if you were to have that over the last, let's say, ten years. Uh, and look at the standings and look at the results uh, year in and year out, most of the Western teams would still be at the top of the list. Yeah, you'd have the Ticats and, you know, uh, the odd year being, you know, uh, among the top three. Uh, you know, Ottawa certainly last year would have been, the, you know, the top three or four. But for the most part, you know, Calgary, BC, Saskatchewan was up there uh, from time to time, Edmonton. You know, those four teams really over the last 10 to 15 years have kind of dominated the win-loss column. Come Grey Cup time, um, if we had five or six or seven or eight straight Grey Cups with a Saskatchewan versus Calgary or a Winnipeg BC or an Edmonton Winnipeg, um, you know I think the Southern Ontario market, especially, and we know how tough it is to sell football tickets in this market and certainly down the highway. Uh, how big of a blow would that be to those two markets, let alone Montreal and Ottawa? Um, I, 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 at this time, I think I would want to see the East Division uh, win-loss record improve before even contemplating a one-division kind of format. Wouldn't that, though, essentially require the Eastern teams to get better? Listen, we're going to throw you into the pool, and you're either going to sink or you're going to swim, and if you want to continue to be as weak as you are, you pay the consequences. And right now, it seems to me that the Western teams are penalized for being so much better. 
Well, yeah, and come playoff time, they are because you can have two teams with uh, you know twelve plus victories. One of them's not going to get to the Grey Cup, and you look at the East, and you know the best teams at eight and ten, and they're in the big dance. Uh, you know that you know that's unfair in the same sense as well. So, you know, at the end of the day, I think you know Canadians who are CFL fans want to see the two best football teams play in the championship game. That not necessarily happens every year. More often than not, they'll meet in the Western final, um, and whoever comes out of the West. You know, over the past several years, has had a pretty easy time against that Eastern team. So, I get what you're saying. I, I think it does make sense, but I would want to see a, a, a much improved, uh, you know, foothold in terms of you know the, the talent in the East. Because the other glitch to this, if you want to call it a glitch, and we'll move on from this, but is that if Edmonton does come over in the crossover, which looks very, very likely, they remain. They could have a better record than the second place team in the East, but they wouldn't get the home field advantage. And to me, that makes no sense either. Whoever's got the better record should be playing at home. Truth be told, they could have the best record in the East crossing over. I mean, they, they could legitimately finish 9-9 nine and nine and be the best team in the East Division. Because, you know, let's face it, Toronto, or, uh, Ottawa and Hamilton are going to duke it out over the next two games. They could easily split those two games. They would both be 500 or under 500. Then they still have two games left. I know Hamilton plays against Edmonton in one of those last two games, and they, they close out against Montreal. So, you know, Edmonton could easily, as I said, finish 8-10 and 10 or 9-9 nine and nine and have the best record in the East Division, let alone be the third-place team and have to play, potentially, two road games to get to the Grey Cup. And they've, they've built that 9-9 nine and nine record having to play more games against the good Western teams. So That's the right. Eastern teams also have the advantage that they may stink, but they actually get more of their wins against each other because they play more games against the East. Like the whole thing, again, it just it, it seems in its current format that there's, I mean, the incentive to get better is obvious. You get more playoff games and you sell more material and you sell more seats and everything. But it it just it seems to me that let's throw everybody in. And you know what, Toronto? You know what, Montreal? I mean, Montreal's been great for a long time. We shouldn't poke fun at them. But you, you, you want to compete in this league? Get better. Get better, or you're just not going to make it. Yeah, and, and you know what? You bring up the LOS, and that, you know, Montreal was the last true elite team in the East Division with, with the Anthony Calvillo years. I mean, you know, these teams went 15 and 3, 14 and 4. They, they were 8 and 0 at home each and every year. Uh, you know, they dominated in the East Final because they hosted it all the time. They always went to Grey Cups. Uh, they won a couple of them. Uh, I mean, that was probably the last really uh, undeniable elite team coming out of the East Division. And that was five years ago. Yeah, and well, since Calvillo went, they I mean, they, they slowed a bit, and then they just sort of fell off the table this year. But um, last thing before we let you go, the still with football, NFL ratings this year are way down. I mean, the numbers, the TV numbers are down in some places, double digits over last year. Monday Night Football has just wet the bed. Sunday Night Football is not doing well. Is there something that you think that you can identify that is going on that is making people not watch? Are they tied into something else? Are they busy with other things? Are they upset at the Colin Kaepernick kind of politicizing of the game and they figure, you know, I'm not interested? What's Any idea, any theory of why people seem to be not spending as much time watching football? I got a couple of thoughts. I'm not sure any one of them is the true kind of, you know, this this is the sole reason. I would think, number one, they haven't seen many key marquee matchups, um, you know, so far in this in this early going. We haven't really seen 
uh, you know, uh, New England versus Denver. Uh, we also haven't seen Tom Brady for the first four weeks. Peyton Manning has left the league. Um, you know, the Colin Kaepernick thing, I think, had maybe a little bit of a ripple effect. But once the games are on, you know, that's more of a sideshow than anything. And it'll probably be brought up with each and every 49ers game. But, you know, from coast to coast down south, uh, you know, not everybody is watching the 49ers. So I think as the season draws on, um, those numbers will improve. But, you know, to put to put one kind of one thing on the bulletin board to say, hey, this is the reason, I'm, I'm not sure that that would be that would be accurate. You do bring up a good point, though, because I have to believe that the ratings this weekend, unless they have a buy, I don't think they do. Tom Brady's playing this weekend, and the ratings for the yeah. Patriots game to see him <laughs> back, love him or hate him, uh, I got to think people will tune in to see what that team looks like and what he looks like after this layoff. Well, yeah and no. I think fans from you know the New England area will certainly tune in because they want to see him in action. I think most of America will probably tune in for a little bit, but they're playing the Browns this week. So by the end of the first quarter, it's going to be forty-nine to nothing, uh, and you know most of America will tune out or go to another game. I think that actually last <laughs> week a lot of people probably spent at least a few minutes tuned in hoping that re- that receiver Julian Edelman was have to going to have to play quarterback just to see what would happen because that would have actually been must-see TV. you gotta, you got to credit Bill Belichick. I mean, here's a guy who didn't have his number one for the first four weeks and knew that going in, wins a huge road game in Arizona with a you know his, his number two guy and then is relegated to his third-string quarterback, wins another game, and finally the train kind of halts to a stop against the Bills last week only because his third stringer had suffered a thumb injury. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously, you know, uh, the law of averages catches up to you eventually, and the Bills played a really good game. So, But uh, Bill Belichick, you know, one of the masterminds in NFL history, uh, continues to push all the right buttons. Um, the uh, Jays start tomorrow at 3.30 in the afternoon in Texas, mm-hmm. 4.30 our time, 3.30 Texas time. Um so 4.30, that gives them two and a half hours. What do I do for the first hour of my show tomorrow if the Jays are on? Do I just, I'll come watch with you. Yeah. What, what do I talk about for the first hour if, uh, if the Jays are on? Um, we're we're hoping... We'll see the whole game. Yeah, well, this is, yeah, this is true. You will. Um, you know what? I'm hoping for a really nice, fast game tomorrow and, then, and for the Jays to win so everyone's in a good mood and they're all, uh, they're all gathered around the radio for a little uh, post-game discussion. I don't think we can guarantee that because, as we know, the playoff uh, baseball scenario is slow down everything, and everything is methodical and drawn out, but it's as exciting as ever. Uh, and just before I let you go, um, uh, Frank t- writes in about what the, what's the wrong with the NFL. Too many commercials, which, you know what, I don't know that that's new. I don't know that that is uh, necessarily the reason right now, but, man, they do have a lot of commercials in NFL yeah. football. Well, I hate when, you know, there's a kickoff, you know, there's a touchdown, we go to commercial, there's a kickoff, <laughs> we go to commercial, and we come back for the next play. You know, two commercials and, and one play has been run over the last 10 minutes. Yeah, and then someone gets hurt on the next play and there's another <laughs> commercial. I mean, they, commercial. the busiest guy, forget the receivers, the quarterback, the guy in the broadcast truck who's got his finger on the <laughs> start the commercial button. I mean, that guy must be exhausted by the end of every show. Yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt. Rick Zamprin. Man of many titles around here. Uh, you can hear him on the air all the time. You can hear him on every night that there is a Ticat game on the fifth quarter afterwards, but not this week, by week, but you can hear him. Rick, thanks for doing this. All right, anytime, Scott. Uh, that is, by the way, the only post-game show that you should be listening to anywhere in this country because Rick does the best job. He has the best show. Tons of callers, tons of, in- tons of insight. Anytime there's a Ticat game, as soon as the game is over, Turn on CHML and listen to Rick. 
The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.